We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month which obviously no pressure whatever you've got we are so appreciative to have but we have awesome gifts for you if you want a hand addressed letter from morgan and isabeau maybe with some special whoa stickers other merch just uh visit our patreon we are womance on patreon or is it patreon.com forward slash womance we would be very proud to call you one of our patrons I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About horse whispering. About wolf taming. About vertigo. About cults. About frogs. About seeking justice. About onion soup. About finding other hobbies. Uh, But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, we are very pleased to be discussing a classic, The Prince of Midnight by who else but Laura Kinsale. Wah, 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 wah! Wah, 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 wah! This is Madame Kinsale's uh, third hatted appearance on our show. Um, the first one, we were introduced to her via Flowers um, from the Storm, along with Melanie Johnson. Shout out to Melanie Johnson. And then we discussed My Sweet Folly after I found it in a thrift store uh, and was like overwhelmingly charmed by the epistolary opening. And then Isabeau happened to find this book um, right before she went on vacation. I did. And fell in love. I did. Uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> As the chooser of this book, Isabeau, would you read the back of the book for us so that we all know what it's about? It would be my delight. The Prince of Midnight. In the late 18th century, intent on avenging her family's death at the hands of a cult leader, Lady Lee Strachan, Strachan, Strachan? However, it's made up. Dresses as a boy and seeks out the reclusive S.T. Maitland, nobleman and highwayman who was once known as the Prince of Midnight. Hiding in a crumbling castle in France with a tame wolf as his pet, the hero is deaf in one ear, suffers from vertigo, and seems revoltingly sentimental to the stoic Lee. But he joins her quest, and together they begin to emerge from their individual suffering. All right. Anything stand out to you? Uh, man, they gave a lot away. <laughs> That's a very, very earnest and uh, transparent back of the book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, that's that's what you get. But I think, like, uh, it does kind of hide some of its celebrity guest appearances. Absolutely. But it is incredible that they were able to encapsulate so much of a, of a rather long book in such a short amount of uh, text. 
I wonder if this was published in an era where there were like professional back of the book writers. I hope so. What a cool job that must have been. I wonder it would be like really difficult. I think so too. I met a person once who told me that they'd been born too late because their greatest ambition was to write the back of movie covers on VHSs. It was like, well, they still have to write descriptions on Netflix. Right? I'm like, this is still a job. This book was published in October Mm. 1990. Oh, wow. Okay. A Libra. A Libra. Just like you. So you were celebrating what? Your like first birthday in October 1990? third and burying my oma i think that i was getting conceived <laughs> yeah shout out to morgan's parents I, th- I do think october 1990 is nine months before april 1991 october, october is 10 november december January. you're missing two that's only seven months so i was i was incubating where you were cooking I was first trimester. You were. Just a little bundle of cells. Dividing ceaselessly. I wonder if my mom even knew she was pregnant by that point. It's a great question for your mom. I'll text her real quick. (laughs) Funny story. I know a woman who was five months gone before she realized that she was pregnant with her third. Yeah. You know, I uh, I was not the first. So in a lot of ways, I haven't made as much of an impact. All right. I asked my mom. Did you know you were pregnant in October 1990? And she said, with you. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes. So, yes. (laughs) Kind of almost feels like there's going to be a reveal of a secret sibling. (laughs) I know. What do you mean with me? What do you mean with me? Is there someone else? (laughs) That's such a good mom answer. Culture was doing a lot in October of 1990. Well, maybe not October 1990. I wonder if you can guess what won the Oscar for Best Picture in 1990. I can tell you that it wasn't Unforgiven. That's true. But other than that, 1990, maybe, oh shit, is it like Schindler's List? No. Okay. I don't know. It's Driving Miss Daisy. Holy shit. Oh, shit. Oh, God. The Oscars. What's really funny, when I searched Best Picture 1990, it pulled up Driving Miss Daisy, and it said, people also search for Green Book and Crash. And I was like, wow, that's too bad for Driving Miss Daisy. The fellow nominees were born on the 4th of July. Okay. Dead Poets Society. Oh, okay. Field of Dreams. Wow, that was nominated for Best Picture? Uh Uh-huh. And then My Left Foot. Oh! So that means Daniel Day won that year. He did. He did. I love My Left Foot. It's quite good. That's my favorite out of this list. But boy, what a like boy dance party this list is, except for Driving Miss Daisy. But like also particularly like sad boy dance party, like deep boy dance party. Yeah. It's a frat guy talking about Of Mice and Men. Yeah. That is the vibe of that cluster. Jeez Louise. Did they even have women in the Academy at the time? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. Speaking of, <laughs> do you want to guess what one album of the year? You too. Bonnie Raitt's Nick of Time. Holy shit. Bonnie Raitt? Okay. Is Nick of Time the one that has I Can't Make You Love Me If You Don't on it? 
I don't know. Let me look it up. I don't think so. Okay. Don Henley was nominated for The End of Innocence. Tom Petty <laughs> was nominated for Full Moon Fever. Mm. Probably should have won. <laughs> Fine Young Cannibals was nominated for The Raw and The Cooked. Nice. She drives me crazy. Ooh. Ooh. I Can't Make You Love Me is not on Nick of Time. Interesting. I can't believe, like, boy, Nick of Time must be a really good album because, like, the only Bonnie Raitt song I can name is that one. Well, I'll tell you, the Chicago Tribune only gave it three out of four stars. Mm. Chicago Sun-Times, that slut, gave it four stars. They would. <laughs> they fucking would. Los Angeles Times gave it three out of five. Oof. Which I don't know why that feels mean. And the Village Voice gave it a B. What did Pitchfork give it? 8.2 out of 10. Yeah, it seems to me that there's like a subtle red versus blue divide there. Pitchfork in the Chicago Tribune versus the Chicago Sun-Times. Correct. <laughs> yeah. I think you're right. <laughs> the three major. <laughs> what do you think about that cultural context? Driving Miss Daisy and Bonnie Raitt. Oh, I think Bonnie Raitt feels exactly correct. Driving Miss Daisy doesn't feel correct for this text, but now that you've put it in context with Field of Dreams and Born on the Fourth of July... Yes. 1990 feels hyperbolic. Yeah. Well, also Dead Poets Society. Yes. Like incredibly sentimental, earnest monologues. But very dark themes yep. in very nostalgic places. Yep. Which I think is very al aligned with Laura Kinsale's Prince of Midnight. I agree. I wish I knew more about Nick of Time by Bonnie Raitt. I think we might have to listen to it uh, just to get a feel for it. But we're in the 18th century, where we're in the 1700s, rather than the Regency, which is always a nice move. Yeah, there's a lot about this book that feels overwrought, but never out of itself. This takes place in the Georgian period, right? Correct. I love, one thing I want to start with, mm -hmm. with this book, just to like, because I feel like we're scene setting. We are. When our main character is... Dressed as a woman, mm -hmm. which she isn't always. Lee Strachan. The book talks about her having like a powdered face mm -hmm. and like a velvet mole. And it talks about people mm -hmm. being like desirous of her and talking about how beautiful she is with her like cake, like her powdered face. Although mm -hmm. it's not very cakey looking um, in real life. What a, a makeup artist I really admired did a history series for the BBC and uh, recreated the like lead an oil makeup that they would have worn and she didn't put it on her face she just put it on her glove and then she like held it in candlelight and it looked so beautiful and she's like yeah you've got to keep it in context right like women were wearing this in like warm candlelight mm -hmm. and it just like glowed it was beautiful and I was like well that makes sense then mm -hmm. <laughs> why but she also pointed out you know, an emphasis in whiteness in makeup starts coming about at the same time that things like the slave trade and black slavery specifically are starting to become ramped up. Yeah. More in the cultural consciousness. Very interesting. Highly recommend Lisa Eldridge, all things. Yeah, it's fun to go to a historical period that we don't oftentimes visit in romance. And sometimes I think it's because in our cultural memory, we don't think of the Georgian like, we kind of think of the Georgian period as a little bit silly because of all the makeup and, like, the really fancy, frothy clothes. Which is just 
terrible because like the Georgian period's amazing, especially like because <laughs> you get Mary Wollenstone Craft, you get a bunch of people who are like, yeah, what's happening in France right now and what just happened in the colonies of the United States? That's great. And let's talk about human rights. Like all of that happens in the Georgian period. Like the Georgian period is amazing not only for its makeup that could kill you but also for its gorgeous broadcloths and its amazing fitted dresses and like the headpieces like sailboats like fuck yeah georgia georgian especially because romance novels are gonna write about the wealthy and as i think the back of the book specified uh lee is the daughter of an earl Mm -hmm. But what I think is interesting, you're pointing out like all of this cultural tumult that's happening in the Georgian period. And what do we know about living in an era where there's a lot of cultural tumult? (laughs) Conservative backlash. (laughs) Uh, And that rears its ugly head in the form of a cult in this book, which I think is very fitting, right? Because in times when there's like a lot of upheaval, People tend to swing hard the other direction and also like feel detached and unmoored. And so they cling to things in our current, like the rise of QAnon in our current age, which has a lot of cult like uh, parallels, even though I don't think it's quite a cult. I know like that's an easy way for us to understand something that I think is actually fairly new. Although maybe it's because it's like there's a godhead, anyways. <laughs> yes. The cult emerges in this. Georgian time period. But Laura Kinsale has a lot of other specific references, which I think we'll get to. But I think that's why, you know, the time period, I think, really does inform the events of this historical romance novel. Yeah. And putting it into the context of 1990, also a period of strong culture clash. The culture wars are ramping up pretty hardcore. There's a lot happening. And just the difference between Driving Miss Daisy, Field of Dreams, and Born on the Fourth of July speaks to that. And I think it's really, really important to contextualize the cult here as a very specific conservative backlash because Lee's parents, her father gives her mother a ton of leeway. She collects the rents. She educates her daughters, of whom Lee is but one. Um, there are three originally. And the she educates them in mathematics and Greek and Latin and lots of non-womanly topics for the time and is a huge proponent of education for women. And then this cult sets up shop in the town and starts harassing the family um, and starts saying things like teaching women is sinful and of the devil, and it gets pretty ugly pretty quickly. Um, And so understanding the cult first as a cultural backlash to a very tumultuous time is a good way of contextualizing the nefarious way in which this particular villain works his wiles. Yeah. Can we just jump into the cult stuff? Let's do it. Because I think something, I want to go ahead and give some trigger warnings. Cults. Sorry. Let that one out of the bag already. Um, Another uh, trigger warning, I think, would be sexual assault. Yep. General violence against women. Suicide. um, Suicide. uh, Fires. Um, Yeah, there's... um, Attempted murder specifically of women. Yeah, and uh, sexual murder as well. Mm -hmm. 
Um, what I think is one of the things that is nefarious about this cult, um, or not, of course it's nefarious, uh, but I recall a scene where, and, and is a comment on this, like, conservative backlash is against oppressed people is about the continued oppression of already oppressed people. Mm -hmm. And so we are first given the context of her mother is very progressive, teaches her daughter. She has three daughters, right? We then discover one of her sisters was found dead in a park with strangulation marks and her skirts hoisted up above her waist. And then her other sister, after a presumed sexual assault, commits suicide. Mm -hmm. Because she finds out that she's pregnant. It's kind of implied that they were both in the same scenario. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the thing that this book is very specific about is that these kind of conservative ideals around being submissive, being a trad wife, as we call them now, because we are back, <laughs> we have returned, does lead to violence against women. Because it does lead to the dehumanization of women um, when we are considered separate, func functionally separate, and we are supporting them, we are a help me, then our autonomy is not preserved in that arrangement. No. And I think people say that it is. <laughs> well, I like <laughs> to jump right into that. It's not only does this cult take over the town, but then it becomes like a beacon for people uh to come who feel lost or broken or whatever it is that draws people to cults mm -hmm. and there's this really particular scene so like we've already come back from france and our erstwhile hero st maitland is trying to figure out this cult because lee's whole reason d'etre is to bring down the cult leader and save the village and so ST is doing some reconnaissance and he there's this awful scene where the women are oh, coming God. in to yeah, can we talk about this scene first? I mean like this is pretty far in the let's, book. Let's let's set up how ST aka Sophocles Trafalgar ends up in this village. Um okay. so we know all of that stuff around the cult, her father um, is stoned to death and mm -hmm. then her mother when they're trying to escape dies in a carriage accident um and so she has decided that she's going to make her way to france to Lee find makes it out she makes it to london where she has cousins and they're like you should probably forget about everything and then she makes this big move where she's going to go to france and find this specific highwayman who is a bit of a robin hood figure and had, in fact, Robin Hooded it up once in her village. And she gets this idea that if the Prince of Midnight shows up, it will shake people free of this, like, idea of, you know, being subservient to uh, our cult leader. And so she dresses up as a boy because she thinks she'll convince him to teach her swordplay as well. And that'll enable them to, like, charge in together. Uh, to save the village and she tracks him all the way to this tiny village in France 
it's classic romance novel stuff where he's like, am I the only one who thinks this young boy is fucking hot? And then he's like, oh, right. It's fine because she's actually a very pretty lady, but I'm the only one who seems to notice. And it's like, are you the only one who notices or are you the only one who cares? (laughs) And what she discovers is that the Prince of Midnight is retired. He lives in a broken down castle. He paints and he eats onion soup. And he has a tame wolf named Nemo, and he likes his life that way. It's incredibly quiet. He doesn't really have any friends, um, and he lives in this weird, crumbling, ramshackle derelict. But he's incredibly charming. Like, he goes to the tavern. Everyone knows him there, and, like, you know, he seems to be, like, healing from a trauma. At, and the, at one- <laughs> first glance, it seems like he's happy there. Yeah, at first glance, it seems like he's happy there, but it's really just like he's created a pretty safe shell for himself. We discover pretty quickly, as we already talked about in the back of the book, that he's deaf in one ear and he has vertigo from his highwayman days, which is why he has escaped to France where he doesn't have a bounty on his head and can try to either heal or just live out the rest of his sad little existence. Yeah, he's dealing with it, but he wants to keep that all secret because he feels very self-conscious. He wants this pretty woman to think of him as the Prince of Midnight. And he starts to get, I think, not only does his penis become erect, but his keenness for adventure along with it. And I think he longs to be who he once was. Um, And so he does not reveal himself. And Lee doesn't, you know, kind of poke or prod it out of him. She just observes. She has like a lot of knowledge about medicine. And so she's trying to suss out what he's got going on. Mm-hmm. She assumes he's an alcoholic, which isn't the case. And when I think I think when she makes that assumption is when he's like, no, it's just like he never says I have vertigo, but we know what mm-hmm. vertigo is. And he thinks that he has to live with it forever. He does agree to go on this adventure with her. Um, they have sex. Even though she tries to leave him behind because by the time she's discovered his vertigo and has some thoughts about his potential deafness, she's like, you know what? Thanks. I can see that my idea was wrong. And he's like, it's wrong because I can't teach you. And she's like, no, I just wouldn't be able to learn it in time. And she really tries to let him down easy to go back to England without him. Um, And it's her letting him down easy that he can't stand. So, like, he doesn't want to go. I mean, he does and he doesn't. He's very conflicted. Like, he wants to stay safe. He likes his life. It feels safe. He knows how to do it. And then here comes this very beautiful woman who's like, you're not who I thought you were. That pricks his pride. And he's like, I'm going to go. And she's like, you can't even fucking walk down the stairs, my dude. Like, I'm not trying to be mean here, but like, I really need somebody who can help me. And I don't think it's you. And he's like, I'm going to show you it's me. He is trying to double bluff her. And he's like, fine, leave. Like, so they go to the inn. And that's where they meet. Ultimate plot device. The Marquis de freaking sod. (laughs) Not like. Pretend Marquis de Sade, actual Marquis de Sade. The literal one. But they don't realize who he is. For those listeners who also might not know who the Marquis de Sade is. Marquis de Sade is where we get the word sadism from. Uh, He was a writer and a marquis. (laughs) (laughs) He was also a pretty violent sex criminal. So anytime someone tells you like, Things were better back in the old days. Uh, point them in the direction of Marquis de Sade. 
<clears throat> who I think at oftentimes people act like he was like some kind of like lone wolf figure. He was not. He was a part of a larger cultural uh, problem of the uh, gentry abusing the lower classes. Um, he was, in fact, arrested for assaulting sex workers. So if you can think about what that was what that must have entailed. You can read, you know, his books are incredibly sexually violent. I think people forget about that too. They do. Like he's kind of, I have this beef where I think like the Marquis de Sade has become like defanged. Yes. I think, you know, he did exist a really, really, really long time ago, but Mm -hmm. he did commit acts of violence and torture in real life as well as write about them. And so this is one of those times when like you can definitely say, no, you cannot separate the art from the artist, right? And he has, like, an extensive criminal record. Anyways. He's fleeing England at the time of this book because he's been brought up on those charges. And France is like, you can hang out here. What I think is interesting about this book is I see Marquis de Sade show up and I'm like, I don't want, I don't know where this is going. But do you know who else knows about the real history of Marquis de Sade? Laura Kinsale. (laughs) Laura Kinsale does and does nothing to hide his predilections. And that's when I kind of not only understood the stakes of the novel, the Marquis de Sade actually has two important roles in The Prince of Midnight. It establishes the real stakes of this novel. It lets you know, like, if you're not in for this kind of thing, probably don't finish the book. And I think it also tells you, um, it also uh, brings a moment of heroism about for our hero so that he can convince Lee um, Sophocles Trafalgar can convince Lee that like he is capable in some way he is useful um, and so he Lee and him don't realize this is the Marquis de Sade he's traveling under an alias he has a conversation with Lee thinks she's a young boy um, and s- says like why don't I take you you know to this come with us like if you need a ride we'll give you a ride uh, and the whole time, ST is trying to subtly get her to not go, um, but also trying to act aloof. And so she goes. And then the innkeeper informs ST who that really was. Lee still does not realize. Um, and it's like actually grooming 101. Like the marquee like shows her pornography and she's like, oh, I'll look at it later. He's like, yeah, I'll look at it later. Um he touches her knee a bunch. Sits uh, really close, breathes down her neck. They go to an inn. A and different inn. He and his accomplice capture one of the innkeeper. Serving girls? A serving girl, a tavern girl. A really intense scene of bondage and uh, attempted rape occurs. And they clearly, Marquis de Sade thinks that Lee is a boy and is trying to get her on board. And says lots of demeaning things about women in front of Lee. And Lee is trying to figure out how to get out. Boom, Prince of Midnight shows up with a wolf. And the wolf is the thing that allows them to rescue the serving girl and for Lee to escape. Um, But not before Marquis de Sade realizes she's a girl um, and gets really, really upset. But the scene is graphic, emotionally intense. That might be a point at which you would like to DNF this book because that's not going to be the last scene. This feels like the first romance novel that contained true horror and was very, like, 
bald-faced about it. Like, I remember we read a book for a Halloween wonus. Like, we've read romance novels that have a lot of suspense, but I think this one had true horror. Like, that kind of curdling feeling. Yes. And I also think that this book does not glamorize in any way the people who are committing these atrocities and does not... And I think a lot that goes that way, a lot that supports that is the fact that Laura Kinsale does not fade to black. Mm -hmm. We stay focused on the scene that's happening. I think about in reference to that like Jack the Ripper book we read, I can't remember what it was called, but very much glamorized the murderer Mm -hmm. um, and was like, is he the hero? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah, which was kind of lame. (laughs) Yeah, Laura Kinsale knows exactly who her villains are. And part of how she shows us that even if they are beautiful, even if they are rich, even if they are charming, is the violence that they perpetrate against others. And one of the ways that she differentiates our highwayman hero, who also has done violent things and killed people, is... uh, his love of animals and his softness and his gentleness and his hyperbole and sentimentality. The villains in this book are not sentimental and they commit horrific acts of violence, particularly against women. And it is all on page. Like, as Morgan said, there, the moments where you wish it would fade to black, it doesn't. It yeah. doesn't flinch. Like, if you're playing chicken, this book is going to win. Yeah. What I think, it it reminded me of, so like in the kind of mid-late 80s, in horror fiction, there was this kind of, it's weird to say creation, but there was a movement, a conscientious movement towards this subgenre called splatterpunk, which is highly offensive. Some people say it's nauseating. It's not horror. Having read, I read like one short story because I was like, oh, this is interesting. And I was like, I don't know if I can do this. I thought about it for weeks afterwards. I was completely ruptured. It wasn't just like violence. It was racist. It was sexist. And it was conscientiously all those things. It was showing you everything, all the worst parts. But one of the reasons it came about was at a horror conference, someone argued like, we aren't actually writing horror. We're writing like erotics because we're fading to black on scenes of violence. And... That is, in fact, you know, writing in a kind of what would come to be known as splatterpunk way isn't self-indulgent. It's honest. A safe, it it should be unsafe, right? I wonder if Laura Kinsale was privy to that because, I mean, but it is like the thing about the zeitgeist, right? Something happens one place, it's probably flowing through another. But I was really surprised there's no feed to play. And it really is like horror, horror. It's not splatterpunk. It's in no way that extreme for people who are concerned. Um, But it is. So I would like to describe the scene where I knew that I was both in safe hands, but I was in an unsafe space. And so like we have this scene with the Marquis de Sade, which I agree is like a perfect like, ooh, if you were uncomfortable here, here's a great place to say peace, not for me. Um, So then we go, (laughs) we go on this adventure. There's a a road trip back to England, um, which I'm happy to talk about 
too because there's some weird shit that happens there um but the the scene that sticks out for me in terms of horror is when we go back to the village that lee is trying to save with the prince of midnight and st is doing this reconnaissance to see what he's up against because you know he's also doing the gross thing where he's like i have to do it like you, you know you can't like you'll be recognized and blah 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 like i have to save you bullshit and at this point st has miraculously overcome his vertigo right because he made the crossing and the crossing was really hard and that ver that practice was part of what quote unquote healed him uh, so he doesn't have vertigo anymore, and he's feeling really arrogant about it. And he's like, oh, man, this is great. Um, mm-hmm. And he goes to the town. Nobody knows him. He's got his bare face rather than his mask. And uh, you start getting this, like, awful sense of suspense. Like, the women aren't talking. They're not talking to each other. They're not talking to anyone. They're kind of hiding. They're hollow-eyed. They're hollow-cheeked. And then they're like, you should come to dinner. You should come to dinner. And the women start like pelting him and petting him and like dragging on his arms. And he's like, wow, haven't had this reaction with a bunch of ladies in a in a fortnight or whatever. And is like likes the attention, but also understands that like something is not quite right here with the women, especially. And then there's this scene where, like, he comes into dinner and the men and women are separated and all the men are sitting down at these long tables. And then the women come in and kneel at the feet of these men to be fed. And there's this specific creature, Dove of Peace, who is clinging to ST's elbow saying, feed me, feed me. Like, what do I like? I'm hungry, like like a baby bird, and he's horrified. And as a reader, we're horrified. And he's like trying to get up and trying to leave. And this whole scene is like debased. And he knows that. And he's really, really uncomfortable. And it, it like escalates from there. <laughs> um, but what was so terrifying to me about that scene is like I I vacillated wildly about ST where like I don't like his chauvinism. I don't like, you know, his arrogance. And like he does this thing where he plays a very particular kind of masculine hero where he's like, no, I'll protect you and like get behind me while I have my sword out. And I'm like, Lee has already shown herself to be an incredibly competent person. So like this performance is just showing you for what you are, which is an insecure dick, um, which is an amazing trick that Laura Kinsale can pull off. But then when he's put inside what is a misogynist, horrific, violent cult, and suddenly he's forced to encounter like the nth degree of what he's doing and taking away autonomy from Lee, he's horrified. And he's like, oh, whoa, I'm not like this thing, but like, holy fuck. And then we're all like, it's shown to be the spectrum that it is. And like there are certain parts of the spectrum that are clearly less violent than others, but like the the spectrum remains, like they're all of a piece, which I thought was such an incredible piece of storytelling. And then to like ramp up the crank of this suspense slowly but surely over the course of an afternoon through Maitland's eyes was also an interesting way of describing this really terrifying What do you mean when you say safe hands? And what about that scene made you feel like you were in safe hands? Because I do really trust this author and like that whatever. What do you mean? What do you mean by safe hands? Like I'm not in a safe space, but I'm in safe hands. 
I trusted that Laura Kinsale was telling this story this way for a good reason. And so, like, I was on the journey in the sense that, like, I I was in a space that I felt really, really uncomfortable and I didn't skip ahead in my uncomfortability, which is something that you can do in a book, because I felt like this author was wanting me to see something specific and I trusted that author. Did So did you skip ahead in the Marquis de Sade scene? No. But you did not – but you say – the scene that made you feel like you were in safe hands but not in a safe space was when they were at the dinner. So did you not feel that way before? No, I felt like I was in safe hands. But like the Marquis de Sade, and this is going to sound like gross and it should, it's like it was easier for me to see an attempted rape on page because I'm like so familiar with that space than it was this scene of feeding which did feel new and terrifying to me. Yeah. So you weren't as frightened by... The Marquis de Sade, no. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting that she included kind of a, a violent rape scene in a genre that uses rape as a way to create relationships. Yeah. I think it's also critical that when we talk about coming into that scene and that kind of spectrum of chauvinism, Sophocles... Trafalgar is arriving there with a lot of confidence and he the, we enter this really eerie setting where it's very quiet right the women are hiding and he has the gusto to go up and talk to one of the women but he does choose Deb of Peace who is largely considered the most beautiful of the women um, and she's very retiring and she tells him that she grew up in the poorhouse and she came here to be saved I think it's significant he chooses the most beautiful woman, right? She tells him this story about herself. And then there's another group of visiting clergymen who arrive in town at the same time. But it's clear that they're separate parties and they're treated as separate parties. Um, And he, like, is manipulated by them taking his horse and then not allowing him to have access to his horse again throughout the day. They keep delaying and delaying and hiding and... um, secreting but what i think is interesting is dove of peace convinces him to go to the church service with her and it's and he admits to feeling like you know lee doesn't look at me like this it feels good to be seen as who i really am Mm -hmm. which is the prince of midnight not sophocles trafalgar although i don't think he explicitly says that in his perspective and he goes to this church service and the cult leader He points to ST and says, power and faith is on this person's side. And then we later find out Dove of Peace is actually from a very well-to-do family and has a very powerful father who's like in the treasury. This is to me very clear, speaking of horror, Mm -hmm. right? This is also a book about like true crime, I think, Mm -hmm. because Marquis de Sade, true criminal, And this is so clearly aligned with Charles Manson in my eyes. Yes. Because Charles Manson, right, he had – people want to create this story of, like, desperate women. Mm -hmm. They were all from – and then were shocked when they found out that a lot of the women who were in his cult were actually from, like, well-to-do, like, normal nuclear families. Mm -hmm. I remember, like, (laughs) people being, like, shocked that so many of them had stay-at-home mothers. Yeah. And college degrees, and they ended up 
with Charles Manson because emptiness uh, is unavoidable. I don't know. <laughs> there, there isn't like a set pattern of living that would save you from emptiness. And everyone is vulnerable. And then he also does the Charles Manson thing where like a good looking guy shows up, a charismatic good looking guy. And he's like, tries to get him on his side right away. And is like, you're, which is like Bobby Beausoleil, for example. I think that that's a very clear Manson family reference point. Mm -hmm. What I appreciate about Laura Kinsale is that because we're in ST's perspective, we understand how his chauvinism brought him here, mm -hmm. but also how his chauvinism makes him vulnerable mm -hmm. to ending up sitting at a dinner table with a woman kneeling next to him and begging him to feed her. And the other men at the table are like, oh, my God, this is so embarrassing. You're making her debase herself by begging. Please just feed her. Please like, this is what we do. Her. Like, this is the normal Please thing. Just, well, also, like, maybe not like this is a normal thing, but this is what we all do to get through this, you know? And Stop making break, a spectacle. Yeah. Yeah. When you rupture that, that's what makes it uncomfortable. Yeah. Like if you had just settled into this, then we could have carried on. Right. I think not making a spectacle is another part. Of, of the horror. Yeah. Of like staying within something like a cult. Mm -hmm. I think it's so relatable, the idea of like not wanting to rock the boat. And so when you're into like cultural relativism, right? And you're like, well, I guess I'll just do this now. And then... And cultural relativism happens everywhere. It happens like at sorority, uh, <laughs> sororities and fraternities. It happens on sports teams. It happens, you know, and. Which is how this kind of violence can perpetrate itself where it's like, you know, you really need someone to create the rupture, but like you actually then need people to follow the rupture. And like what's so terrifying about that scene is like it is so uncomfortable. We're so rooted in his perspective, but it's also like he's so uncomfortable with the literal thing that's happening, Dove of Peace mouth open at his knees all of these yeah. other men being like just fucking feed her dude like she's hungry like fucking feed her like do yeah, it she won't eat if you don't do it right and so then they, and then there's this like awful crowd mentality and then like he like tries to get up from the table and then like people put hands on him and like the situation just like really escalates from there and then finally he's back in the church they've like done this thing and they're like he needs the power of God poured into him. He needs a healing. And like, that was fucking terrifying. The, I want to stay in the dining room. Okay. Because I think there are some other key elements here. Because I think the book is saying, I think you're right. And I'm seeing so much evidence of the book showing like, chauvinism is a spectrum, but it's, it's, it's also a pathway. Yes. Right. And so, first of all, I want to point out, like, our Lee is not aware of this practice. No, she's not. This has been picked up in the months since she left. So it is like a slow, it's boiling the frog. Right. Um, and while they're sitting there waiting to eat, he's getting hungrier and hungrier. And meanwhile, these clergymen from the other town are sitting in, like, a normal dining room having a normal meal. And he can't figure out when they're going to eat, why they aren't in there. And one of his dining companions leans over and is like, you know, we don't choose all outsiders to join us for our meal. And so it's like, this isn't just like. It's like, you're a special. What we're doing in here. 
is a special privilege. These ways of falling into cult thinking, one of the key ones is thinking you're special. It makes you feel special. Flattery, which isn't defined when they're in the church scene. It's not made clear until they're at that dining room table that this is using that you are special. You get to feed a woman. And a woman feels special because she gets to be fed by you. And we're also shown that this has been slowly escalating from like what I would consider would be like pretty bombastic acts of violence, stoning the Earl in the street. Raping and murdering the Earl's daughters, imprisoning the mom. So like, but it's true, like once you transgress, other transgressions become easier. Mm -hmm. But it's, I think the thing that really seals people is that belief that your transgression is is a special privilege. Is a kind of worthiness. And like ST is made vulnerable to that kind of thinking because he's been suffering from vertigo, because he's deaf in one ear and he's not who he used to be. And he feels that acutely. And Lee, as the back of the book says, is stoic, which is one way of describing her. Another way is to say that she's kind of cruel to him in ways where she like she doesn't give him space for his insecurity she's constantly calling him out about it and she's like you just need to work with yourself like stop trying to pretend like this isn't happening to you and he's like blah I'm the prince of midnight and like so in terms of this spectrum of misogyny but also this pathway that you're talking about we see all the ways in which ST is really vulnerable to this. He's also incredibly charismatic. He likes to think of himself as a ladies' man and like charming and all this other stuff. And then to have that confirmed by Dove of Peace, the prettiest girl in the village, and all of these other men who are like, hey, you're special. And then for the preacher to also do that, it's like confirming the thing that he wants confirmed. And then it and then it, it goes too far. And then like we come up against a real hard boundary and he's super uncomfortable. And it's because, like, while he might not think women are equal, which he clearly doesn't based on his actions and his internal monologues, he does think that they are people and they should be treated not the way that they're being treated here. Yeah. I I don't know. You know, I, I think it could be a pathway, right? Maybe if they hadn't jumped that on him so early on. And had slowly introduced him to the idea of being responsible for Dove of Peace, right? He would have sat there. Um, but I think for the dramatic purposes of the book that there wasn't like an actual attempt made to indoctrinate him. But I think, um, I don't know. There's also something, like we're talking about like chauvinism and misogyny. But I, I do think there's something about Dove of Peace that feels like through a mirror darkly of S.T., um, ST was likewise this kind of like larger than life hero. I think Dove of Peace was that as much as the average, you know, woman could be in the Georgian period. She was well taken care of. She had all the best dresses, right? She had a um, debut. Yeah, she had a debut. And yet she chose to go down this other route, which made her feel special, right? I, and I think that's the sameness. I think, but. Dove of Peace was definitely indoctrinated more. Um, and we see that the cult leader himself has a female right hand. And so I can kind of see parallels. <laughs> Is all to say, like, this book has some elements that I've never encountered in romance before, at least not like this. Not like this. Not this well done. 
And if you're a horror fan, this is probably a romance novel for you because I'm a horror fan. It's a romance novel for me. But I kind of want to go back to our discussion of Lee and what her, what she's like. Because as much as there's these like very clear, horrific scenes, there's this kind of underlying tumult of grief throughout the book because Lee's greatest suffering isn't the suffering endured by her sisters or her father or her mother or even the people in her village. Lee's greatest suffering is having to carry on. Yeah, that she's the only one left. Yeah, is to be a survivor, right? Mm-hmm. And to she talks about how when we're in her perspective, there's a moment where she's riding in the carriage with ST before they get to England, right? And he's still um, in the state that she found him in. And he is funny and charming and she starts thinking about what it would be like to introduce him to her family at Christmas time and then realizes that that will never happen that she'll never have anyone to share him with and her cruelty towards him or what you know I wouldn't say it's cruelty I (laughs) I didn't read it that way but her determination to keep him at a distance and set boundaries um is because she does not want to grieve again and she thinks he's very vulnerable as she correctly thinks he's very vulnerable to death um if he seeks out adventuring and he's silly right like he almost right off the bat says that he's like falling in love with her and Mm -hmm. like in so many ways, he feels naive, even though he is a highwayman, even though he's all of these things. And like, yeah, he f- like he is literally unsafe. For yeah, me. and I think you're right. He is silly. And I think her, the intensity of her insult, right, or whatever you want to call it to him, the intensity of her put downs to him only match the intensity of his like proclamations of affection. Yes, Absolutely. And I think she rightfully sees it as like, I don't think this is actual love. Yep. I think this is you see, having someone look up to you and you being in love with that former idea of yourself. Yes. Like, she's right. Yes, she is. Every time that she says it. In so many ways, it's like he's trying to project this romantic notion of self but also love onto her. And she just like rips it down every time. She's like, that's not real. That's not true. You don't know what you're talking about. And to have a female main character do that was awesome. <laughs> like, I like I, I call it cruel because it felt cruel from Maitland's perspective. Like he's constantly wounded by her, but like he's constantly doing it to himself, and that's what she's saying. She just doesn't have patience and like she's not going to give him the emotional labor to like soften it for him she's like that's not true and to have a character do that was really I mean I don't know if enjoyable is the word but like it's in that ballpark for me at least I found it enjoyable I think it's there's something kind of meta to the fact that she's refusing these romantic advances and that when she starts to feel the most affection towards him is when she perceives him to be like respecting her boundaries that she clearly states she says I will have sex with you 
I have had sex before, which we can talk about. She says, I will have sex with you if that's what you want. I cannot give you love. That's not something that I'm interested in. And that's not something I feel capable of or comfortable with. And that becomes his ultimate goal is to transgress that boundary, right? Like, I'll make her love me. And he does things by playing games like, oh, I'll act like I'm not interested. And those are the times when she kind of is able to settle in and and be comfortable. But then he just becomes so overwhelmed by his, like, need for her to say it, to say, like, I love you, meaning that, you know, the Prince of Midnight, not just the Prince of Midnight, but ST is worthy of love, becomes his, like, personal project. And he he is likewise, like, her her experience of him transgressing is cruel. Yes. And unfair. It's at the very least unfair because she has a goal. And the stakes are much larger for her than feeling good about herself again. Like she's accepted she will – she has accepted she will never feel good again. She just needs justice. She's accepted that she just needs justice. And he eventually comes to realize that he did not love her before. Yeah. That his notion of love was actually quite shallow and self-involved. Yeah. It was self-involved, yeah. Yeah, and I think like one of the things that their relationship and this depiction of grief is so good is like the moments where – because she is very self-contained, Lee, and she is really good at like tamping down what feels like an uncontrollable storm when it shows up, and then she just has this outpouring. And oftentimes he has triggered it on purpose because he's trying to get a reaction out of her – But he's never trying to get the reaction out of her that he ends up getting. And then he doesn't know what to do because he fucking instigated it. And then she has this massive outpouring of grief. Like when she describes what happened to her sister, she's like, can you even bear to hear it? And he's like, you don't have to say it. And she's like, I'm going to make you hear it, right? Because you wanted this. You wanted me raw. And so then, you know, she does these things and then he like – tries to pick up the pieces, but like what is so wonderful about those moments where you've watched someone trigger someone else on purpose. Yeah. But they didn't know what they were getting into. Yeah. And then his immediate contrition, and he never says he's sorry, but we know that he's sorry because he says it in his internal monologue. And it's like, (laughs) there's so much in here about Maitland being forced to confront himself by his actions to Lee and that she is like uncompromising in it. Like she doesn't make space for him to be like, oh, I didn't get it. And she's like, you should have. You literally should have. I think it's interesting because this is a romance novel where typically our main characters are dealing with either a shared internal conflict or a shared external conflict. In this novel, Lee has an external conflict She's got to defeat the boss. And ST has an internal conflict. He is not who he used to be. And he can't make peace with that. And it's interesting that I think Lee is grieving the loss of others. And ST is grieving the loss of, like, I don't know, his youth. Yeah, his self. I think his youth. Because it doesn't it seem like it's his youth problems- and competency. His, like, but I think youth feels like competency, probably especially for men. Probably. Like, getting older is about 
you know, accepting changing limits. And he refuses to do that. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think his, like, literal changes, the changes that Laura, the writer, (laughs) sets up, the book sets up for him, are kind of sudden aging. He loses hearing in one ear. He gets vertigo, um, which limits his mobility um, and prevents him from doing physical activity overall that he used to be able to, that he used to love, like horseback riding. And I think what's the way this book sustains those same stakes, because oftentimes, you know, this kind of conflict becomes boring. This essential, like, essentially miscommunication conflict, right? I think the way the book sustains this is by having him suddenly get better and then be like, it changes the miscommunication. It's like, now I am perfect and you still refuse me. I thought that the reason you didn't like me is because of my vertigo and the fact that I, uh, and my deafness in one ear. It turns out the reason you, now he has to confront the fact that this idealized version of him, his old, his previous self also doesn't exist. And like he was grieving an idea more than a person, an idea of himself rather than who he actually was. And he in fact like does do highwayman stuff and it causes a huge amount of stress. And he feels like, he has like this little outburst. He like wants to, Lee looks beautiful in her Georgian makeup and he's like, I'm going to show her. (laughs) And it causes like an inordinate amount of stress. I mean, he gets away with it. But then instead of being like, oh, that was dumb. He's like, and everything worked out. So it's all okay." And she's like, I I asked you not to do that. Like, I literally asked you not to do that. And you did that. And I feel like you've made the situation worse. Yeah, I mean, this book is so good at all of that. (laughs) Eventually, and then we go into a third act of the conflict wherein Lee is now, yes, she is truly in love with him. And she has moved on from wanting vengeance. And is now, let's leave this place. Let's start over. You and I can make this. Yeah, I don't care about this. This doesn't matter to me as much as just you surviving. Right. And he's like. But he doesn't. He refuses to hear that. Right. And instead takes it as you don't believe I can do it. Right. But I can do it because I'm different now. I'm the old me. What you don't get is that I'm no longer ST. I am the Prince of Midnight. I ride a very big difficult horse. I am the kind of. I, I'm ready. And, like, I think he's force. it's almost like he's forcing, he needs her to be in love with him so that he can be in love with himself again. I think that's exactly right. And the way that he's going to win her love is by making her a gift of her vengeance. And it's like, that's not how vengeance, vengeance works. works. <laughs> and, like, yeah. she's already laid it down. And, like, you can't accept that she's laid it down because, like, and ultimately the thing is, like, well, if she can't love me as the Prince of Midnight, why would she ever love me as Sophocles Trafalgar? Because, like, what does that guy have to offer except being a subpar cook and a lover of animals? Like, that's and not a really enough. a really good painter. A very good painter. Like, that's not enough, right? Like, I have to be something else for this incredible survivor and human being that he sees Lee because he's got Lee on a pedestal and he just leaves her there 
Yeah. Yeah, and he keeps doing it. Yeah. He repeatedly just leaves her there. And he keeps, like, bringing out these, like, 16-year-old hotties from the village with him and being like, okay, and now you guys hang out. And he's like, like, see, this pretty girl thinks that I'm awesome, Lee. Why can't you? See how she's looking at me? Look at me like this. Right? And just, like, bringing people to make her jealous. And she's like, what the fuck? And then he's like, oh, I'll get rid of them right away. And she's and like, it's clear that it's like, oh, so these people also aren't human beings to you. These are also props for your Prince of Midnight show. Yeah. Um, and she calls him out on that. And he gets, he tries to ship them off anyways. And he's like, see, you're the most important one to me because I'm going to make a gift of your vengeance. And I'm sending away the 16-year-olds. Yeah. I don't even care about them. They don't even matter. It's I only did it for you because I wanted you to be jealous. All of this yeah. is for you, Lee. Yeah. Thank you for saying you were jealous and so we can move on with the project. Uh, yeah. And I think he's – I think this is a book about an incredibly selfish person having to realize that fact about themselves. Yes. Um, And they, of course, realize – do they realize it by listening? Does he come to realize it by taking stock, doing a little self-interrogation? No. It is when Lee is tied up in a burning building. <laughs> her her childhood home, which has been lit on fire by the cult. Yeah. That's how he comes to his clarity. Mm-hmm. Which is, I don't know. Saving her from the burning wreckage of her childhood home has, I think, a lot of symbolic weight for him that she had already done away with. And so then, like, there's this scene at the very end where he's like, well, you know, we have enough money. Like, we could fix it up. And she's like, even if we could, even if we did the tear down and everything, she's like, I don't want to go back to that space. Like, she's already come to terms in any way that she can with her grief in such a way that she's like, you know, this this living business, this carrying on business is is the thing that I now want to do. And even in that moment when he's like, well, we've got the money, we could fix it. It's like he still like doesn't understand. Yeah. But I I do kind of respect the book having that moment, right? Like after he's, you know, so after he saves her from the fire, he's recognized as the Prince of Midnight because he's encountered someone from his old life as a dandy in England and has then revealed himself as the Prince of Midnight in this cult community. We find out that this dandy from England is a Marquis de Sade super fan and has paid this cult to allow him to kill a woman while he's raping her, which is how the cult makes money. Yeah, I never even questioned for a second. I guess I think like in ye old times, I always just assume people had money and I never think about capital exchange in historical romance unless we're like, I am a duke and I have to go collect the taxes so I can pr- protect my people. Um, but yeah, there's capital ex- a pretty fucking harrowing capital exchange. Um and even just like dialoguing about it. And so he he's revealed um, he obviously there's a bounty on his head. So he has to, you know, he's got to leave Lee rather than be arrested. Lee convinces the sheriff of the community who remembers her to let him go. He drags himself to a cave in Scotland and heals himself uh, from the fire and then 
drags himself back down to England. And, like, he goes through this, like, solo hero's journey only to be like, yeah, he'll never get it. Like, even after he went through all of that, he'll never understand what Lee is going through. That will always be a patch. Like, And that's because something like that is not understandable. I don't think you can empathy your way into something like that you can't and he's like constantly blundering about the edges of it so like pretty early on he starts calling her sunny or soleil and she doesn't say anything about sunshine he calls her sunshine sunshine and she doesn't say anything about it but she flinches sometimes when he says it and it's because her father used to call her sunshine and she's like you know he had no way of knowing that but it's stuff like that where he, like, is constantly just tripping over, like, the immensity of her loss. And it's <laughs> – he just doesn't know how not to. Um, and he doesn't seem particularly interested in learning how not to, uh, which is his major fault, right? <laughs> there – I think this book demonstrates that empathy is not enough via his – relationship with animals so one of the key things about him is that he has create he has bonded a wild wolf to him and created a pack and is able to like kind of direct this wolf in the same way you would a dog while still giving it plenty of room to respecting it as a wild animal uh which is kind of it seems like a parallel with lee like, he likes the fact that she's fiery and different and vengeful, um, but he needs her, like, he needs her to love him. I heard somewhere that, like, uh, people who hate cats aren't comfortable with ambiguity. And I think animals are so much a shorthand for not just characters, but people in real life will use animals as a shorthand for understanding other humans Or even just, like, a goodness. Yeah, like... Yeah, like an inherent goodness, right? And he's got an especially skilled goodness, right? If he's able to, like, get a wolf to commit to him, he, like, is able to break these incredibly intense horses. And he wants... He forces Lee into a situation where she is supposed to help him break a horse. And he wants her to do it because he wants her to see how hard it is. What an incredible feat he's able to accomplish. And her greatest fear is getting attached to the horse that will someday die. Like, she has previously gotten attached to, like, a blind mare that they were able to rescue and then became attached to the hero by seeing how kind he was with the blind mare. I think probably – I think she – over the the book wants us to understand that she's over-identifying with this, like – damaged broken horse because of her grief and her believed in inability to love again and she sees how patient he is and how he makes the mare like a worthwhile animal again so that it doesn't have to go to the charnel house yeah so it doesn't become glue and how fucked up is it that the elmer's logo is a cow it's pretty fucked up yeah it's like just in case you didn't know this was made from animal byproducts I don't know. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's honest. Anyways. I mean, the cow's smiling, so I don't think it's that honest. I love being glue. The best feat for a cow. So she, <laughs> she uh, could have been gelatin. Second best feat. 
Um, so she, she like, uh, you know, she has this painful separation from the horse. She completely cuts off. Like, she's like, nope, I don't want to see you sell it. I'm going to go do my own thing. And he's like, wow, she's such a bitch. Like, he thinks that about her. So she's like, I don't want to go through that again. And I know I'll have to because I'm going to leave you. And she starts weeping from the intensity. She has this shared intensity with this animal that's being put through this exhausting experience where the animal is physically exhausted to the point where it simply has to stop and look to you to save it from its own physical exhaustion. That's how, that's how he breaks the horse, right? And I think she feels like she's going through the gauntlet. But I think we're supposed to know that he's capable of empathy by the way he feels bad after he asks her about her sisters, but also the way animals love him and he's able to connect with them and understand them and read them. But it's kind of incredible to me that like he's able to identify with animals in a way he's not able to identify with her i'd like to throw a stone in this pool (laughs) okay go ahead because i think you're right that he thinks of himself as an incredibly empathetic person who can understand things uh animals in particular wounded broken animals in particular like the second horse is being beaten in front of them at the tattersall but It also, like, this book is so good at showing his limitations, right? Because he loves this wolf, Nemo, so much that he takes Nemo with them, even though they're going to be around people, and France kills wolves all the goddamn time. So he creates a leash at first, and then he creates an actual fucking cage to bring Nemo across the channel. And, like, by caging Nemo to keep Nemo with him is, like, this incredibly cruel thing that Nemo doesn't understand and doesn't like. And it, and he's he's not doing it for Nemo. He's doing it for Maitland. Like, he doesn't want to leave Nemo behind. And so, like, even in It's these- not only that he loves Nemo. It's that he can't be a glimmer of his former self without, without having a wolf. Right. And so- On his side. Even in the moments where, like, this shorthand for his moral goodness, which I definitely think this is, it's also revealed that it has its limitations, where it's like Maitland thinks first and last of himself, even as he's helping these animals, even as he's, like, showing her that he's helping these animals. He's also literally using them, as you said earlier, as props for the Prince of Midnight. But, like, they're also props for himself and, like, his comfort and his soft feeling right like he does love these animals like that's not in question it's like you love something so much you'll cage it Mm -hmm. but he loves things that he can train to love him unconditionally but it's because they need him for something and i think that's why he wants to make a gift of vengeance he's like you need me for this you know and once i provide you with what you need as i do with wolves as i do with horses then you will love me unconditionally And so I think it does clear – I can see the text clearing that pathway. I don't see the text problematizing his putting Nemo in a cage because he feels bad about it. He doesn't feel bad about it. But I, as a reader, understood that I should feel bad about it because Nemo was so uncomfortable and sad and whining and upset. 
He does feel bad about it. He says specifically he feels terrible about caging Nemo. But, like, does it? Yeah. <laughs> and I think, but I th- I don't think the book says, like, so see how selfish he is. No, but the book would never say that. Like, the book doesn't need to be that explicit. Well, I don't think that wasn't implied to me in the text. I wasn't able to read that in the text. It seemed just like he was like, boy, I feel bad about Nemo. Here's further evidence of how much the that ST loves this wolf is that he feels bad caging it because the average person probably wouldn't feel bad. They would kill the wolf. Or like fucking let it go. No, I think I think that's important that it points out like how vulnerable Nemo is around other human beings. Right. They shouldn't like they shouldn't have taken him out of northern France. Like there's there's a pack that he joins up with for a few days. Like And then he chooses to go back to Maitland. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the ways the book doesn't problematize the relationship between Nemo and um Maitland. And the reasons I don't think it problematizes it is because Nemo choose like, I think it's actively working against problematizing it maybe even, is that Nemo chooses to return to Maitland. And it has offered plenty, it shows that he's always setting Nemo free. Like, that's how it's contextualized. Nemo is going to go hang out in the woods, and then Maitland just knows Nemo will choose to come back to him. Except he doesn't, because that's why he creates the leash in the cage. He creates the leash in the cage so other humans won't kill Nemo. Because, because if they see a wolf in the woods, they'll kill it. Yeah, I I think there's there's more complicated stuff here, but um. I don't think that I I I think there's lots of complicated stuff in this book. I don't think the book is problematizing the relationship with Nemo. I think the book is just like he's such a good wolf owner, <laughs> and like that makes him chill. Another animal relationship that I don't think the book problematizes is my weirdest part. Okay. In the afterword of the book, we get a a sex scene on horseback. It is a full-blown sex scene on horseback. Um, Not that they, they don't finish on horseback, but they are having penetrative sex on top of a horse. And the horse has been uh, humanized for us up to this point. <laughs> Minstrel or Mistral. Mistral. Um, Mistral, the horse, uh, has a personality. We've been on a journey with Mistral. Mistral is not a table. Mistral is not a bed. Um, Mistral is not an absence of preference. <laughs> Mistral is a is. A very horsey horse. I think other times when we've seen, I I remember when we read the like horseback sex scene, which was merely manual in uh, Awaken My Love. The horse is, we've not met the horse before. Um, And so it's a little bit easier to distance yourself. This is a fully formed character in the book, this particular horse. And so it comes across, and the horse is also bewildered by what's happening and confused. And we get that evidence that's shared with us. And that's pretty fucked up. Like, I, in general, find horse top sex scenes pretty fucked up. But one with the horse being like, oh, my God, what's happening? It's me, Mistral. Like, is especially disturbing. 
and not what I was expecting. It's also in the afterword, which is a weird place to put it. It seems like you just had like a little flight of fancy. It is, I will say, evidence that he's not actually... Um, I Once again, I don't think the text is problematizing the fact that they're fucking on a horse. I think the fact that we know that Mistral is uncomfortable, well, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's problematizing. It's certainly drawing attention to the fact that there is a third character that did yeah. not consent. Yeah. I don't think it's drawing attention to the fact that the horse did not consent either. <laughs> I think it's just merely like, and look at this little, sil- I think the book is like, look at this little silly edge. This big bad horse is like a little bit confused, you know? And and I think probably, like, the relationship with animals, between animals and humans in this book in general, I think, like I talked about earlier, comes right up to the edge of being cool and then seems like the text does not understand, does not problematize any of the problematic things that are happening to these animals, right? Like taking a wolf out of the wilderness or fucking on top of a horse. Mm-hmm. That's my weirdest part. What's your weirdest part? I kind of want to say that my weirdest part is like the uh, Duyas Machina at the end, where it's like the sheriff lets him go. He spends all this time in the cave. And like the other thing is like, there are only three pounds on his head as the reward, which like, even in ye olden times like he's disappointed by how little that money is and so like the fact that you know he's like this big bad in his own mind but it's only three pounds and that like it's enough to like imprison him like that like that was the only time that I felt like the stakes were misaligned um and then to have dove of pieces dad show up and be like I'll make this all go away for you is like is three pounds is anyone really looking for him like this seems I'm not sure that I needed this third act of him to like be alone in a cave to make himself right for Lee like I mean it is yeah I think he could have just been arrested yeah and then they'd be like oh it's three pounds and like you know Lee's cousin could have paid it. I mean, like, any... Oh, it's not a bounty. It's, like, getting paid for his capture. They're not going to release him. They're just yeah. going to reward you with a mere three pounds. Right, which for doesn't his capture. seem like he... Yeah, like, even with the arrest, it, like, doesn't seem worth it, so... To give him up? No, I mean, just, like, it... That felt like I saw the structure of the novel for the first time. Like, I saw, like like, the way in which that... Dove of Peace's dad showed up to make it all okay was the first time that I was like, oh, this feels like the plot working rather than the novel working, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think Dove of Peace's, like, I think, like, it is structurally sound, but I I do see how it could be, like, how are we going to get him out of prison, right? And how are we going to make him a hero? Um, so that he doesn't have to, because like it's not the reward; it's the fact that he can be arrested at all. Um, the reward, the low reward, is just like a, an injury to his, his ego. pride. Yeah, yeah, but it doesn't change the fact that, like, regardless of how much the person who gives him up gets paid, he ends up in prison indefinitely and hung because 
he was a highwayman. Yeah. Um, so he would have been executed. Um, and I think those stakes are, I, I would have a hard time figuring out how to get out of that one. If I were a writer without having like, guess what? Double Peace's dad is actually the treasurer and he doesn't, he doesn't want anyone to know that his daughter joined a cult. So he is going to make this all go away and it'll create room for him to be only the heroic Prince of Midnight, not the criminality aligned with it. What was your sexiest part? It was the sex scene on top of the horse. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. In sunny Italy. My sexiest part, I don't know, you go first. I'm, I'm pondering it. There's a, there's a lot of sexy stuff in this book. There's a lot of sexy stuff in this book, but the sex scenes themselves are not terribly sexy because Lee denudes herself of sexiness in them on purpose so that she's not exposing her heart. Um, so <laughs> typical Isabel, one of my sexiest parts is like in a fit of this like storm of emotion, Lee tears apart her watercolor book and like throws the pages around and in the pages are these little watercolors that she's done of her family and it's just this like you know she just can't bear to look at it she's upset that he's already rifled through it and it's just this like massive physical outpouring of her grief and like he doesn't address the fact that he a triggered it and then b watched her do it but he very softly and quietly collects all the pages again so that and puts them back between the covers and like takes the mud off so that she continues to have this piece um, if she wants it in the future. And like that kind of cont physical contrition and that kind of like, it sucks that he can't say that he's sorry in that moment, but that he does, you know, take this care with this thing that like she will probably want in the future. Um, was really that kind of tenderness from him didn't it wasn't in the keeping of the hyperbolic like I'm in love with you I'm the prince of midnight it was like the soft like that was like a moment where I actually felt like he is as good as he thinks he is he just literally doesn't know how to do it yeah I think sometimes we're so like limited in our capacity to clearly express love because we can only think of it as how we want to receive it yeah. And so we just end up ships in the nighting so much. But I, I that's your sexiest part? Yeah. Sex that's okay. I mean cuz like honestly that ga that stirred sexy feelings, not tender feelings. Yes. Okay. Uh I remembered my sexiest part where I chose my sexiest part. I did not my okay so while the sex scenes are kind of sad um especially the early ones there is something like I delight I do delight being in the male perspective um admiring a woman and feeling like what it would be like to be admired like that and imagining that everyone who has never expressed it to me has just secretly been thinking how much I look like an alabaster stone in a hot way but my favorite scene is when he is actually sick on the ship passage. So they're taking a very short passage as stowaways on a um, ship to England, right? So that she can go and get her vengeance. And he becomes incredibly sick, super ill from his, from his vertigo. And 
he's like stuffed away in a bed. The ship's captain has like stuffed him away and is like, oh, I'm sorry. He's in really bad shape. And Lee is dressed as a boy still. And she's started her tender ministrations. The book is, in, is, is I think, in um, ST's perspective. And he's so sick. He's like, under, he understands that he's being cared for. But that larger context isn't really brought into view until the ship's captain um, asks if they are lovers and if she is his Molly Cole, which is um, a gay lover, uh, to be vague and in general about it. But um, and she's confused by this question, which isn't realistic. And and he is moved both by jealousy because the captain's a little like flirty with her. He's moved by jealousy and he is kind of unbound, I think, by – because there are times when he's like, I cannot – the biggest problem I have is that she dresses like a boy and I want to flirt with her in public. And this is a moment where he is over – his need for social stratifying is overwhelmed by his desire and possessiveness, right? He wants her so much for himself that he, regardless of the implications, uh, becomes, like, very jealous and possessive of her and lets the captain know that this isn't something that's on offer. And I like, I think it's very sexy because it points out that these two are very sexy and flirty all the time in spite of themselves. And it kind of puts all of those other scenes into perspective. It also is just, like, there's something about that kind of jealousy in a romance novel that feels really safe tingles for me and so I really enjoyed that little outburst um but the sex scenes are also nice I think but yeah, they are a little the- marred by the emotional trauma going into them yeah I would say the third one is the least fraught and then the one on the horse is just what it is Womance or no man's it's a romance for me another can sail winner um Keeps knocking for you. Obviously, she's just like batting a thousand. This one, even in 1990. So, everyone should read this book and then let us know do you think the book problematizes the weird relationship with animals? And do you think that the book has a deus ex machina in its final resolution? Um, Since we both ended up with weirdest parts that neither of us agreed with. Which is, I think, the sign of a pretty thought-provoking text. Indeed. With that, loosen your stays. But never your principles. Wooly guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonsack. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womance and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email 
womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Romance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.